when thinking about what structure is best and what's the most tax-effective structure, what's the best from a commercial perspective as well. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution and these generally need to be tailored to the business involved, what it's exactly doing, what activities it's going to do, is it going to reinvest money. You've got a bit of a blank canvas and you can choose where to go from there. You are listening to Australia's tax news podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 189 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. Structuring a business or structuring wealth is not a one-size-fits-all proposition. As you know, it all depends on objectives and specific circumstances. But taking a bird's eye view, looking at the concept, we have four building blocks, sole trader, partnership, company and trust. And it doesn't look like a huge choice, but it is thanks to trusts. As you know, a trust is only a relationship. And so there are endless possibilities how to define this relationship. So a trust is never just a trust. It is a fixed or discretionary trust or a hybrid of the two. It is a discretionary trust with a family trust election or without. It is a trust inter vivus or testamentary. It is an SMSF or it isn't. And the list goes on. So while on the surface there are just four types of building blocks, there is a lot more when you look underneath the bonnet. So this is what we will do in this episode. We will look at the different options you have and why you would choose one structure over another in different scenarios. As you know, super funds live in a world of their own. And so for simplicity, let's put super funds aside for this episode. So here is Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Sydney going through 13 criteria you might consider when structuring business or wealth. Talking about tax structuring, and it's a great question that's always asked, you know, how do I structure my business? How do I structure my wealth? What's the best structure for me? And it's kind of like starting uh, as an artist with a with an easel with a completely blank canvas and you've got you know, 10 different paints you can choose. You can create whatever you want. And the options are the same with structuring. They're almost sort of limitless in what you can set up and the complexity of what you set up and so forth. But I guess there's probably some main principles to consider and I guess some factors. There's a few factors that are quite important and that that need to be considered. As a sort of general comment, I'd say that the best structure is going to entirely depend on the client in mind, their circumstances, what they're doing, what kind of activities they're doing, whether they're doing passive investment, running a manufacturing business, running a property development business, having co-owners, it really is something that needs to be. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution to say that, yep, it has to be discretionary trust that owns shares in a company. There's not a one-size-fits-all solution. And in an ideal world, these are the convers- you have these conversations before starting a, setting up a business, but in a lot of circumstances, these conversations will arise sometime after the business has been set up. It's, you know, set up... I guess, without 
too much regard for those things when the focus was just getting the doors open and, and making some money, which is probably more important, putting you know food on the table and so forth. But as a business gets more established, then more thoughts can go into these. And at that point, you've then got to sit, consider, well, is it possible to restructure? How can we do so without big tax implications as well? But leaving that to one side, I wanted to go through, I guess, the, some of the criteria and some of the factors to consider and the pros and cons of each. So just as a revisionary exercise, I guess some of the main choices for structures are sole traders, so running a business in your personal name, partnerships, that can be a partnership of individuals, a partnership of companies, a partnership of trusts, in one way or another, a partnership, running a business as a partnership, a company, that could be a company in its own right, it can be a company as trustee for a discretionary trust, it could even be a company as a partner in a partnership, and then trusts, which is a huge category in its own. We can have a discretionary family trust, could have a unit trust, you can have a fixed unit trust, and we can even have a hybrid unit trust as well. So, But in essence, there's those four categories. So sole trader, partnership, company, and trust. And there's all kinds of variations on those as well, but the possibilities are quite large. Criteria one, timing of income distributions. So in terms of some of the criteria that need to be considered, the first one that I wanted to mention was timing of income distributions. So there's not one structure generally that can be you know put in place to avoid tax altogether. It's not uh, unless you're using uh, some tax evasion or some fraud of some sort. If you're staying on the legal side of the law, which is the side they should be on, it's more about the timing of income distributions. So what I mean by that is if you're a sole trader, you run a business, then the income is derived by you and it's derived in accordance with the derivation of income principles, which will be either on a cash basis or on an accruals basis, and then you'll pay tax at your marginal rate. In contrast, where you've got a company, a company would pay tax at the corporate tax rate and it's all the small business tax rate of 27.5%. It's then free uh, to choose when further tax will be paid on that. Now, if money goes for personal use one way or another, the top rate of tax or the top rate of tax could be payable, but there's a timing aspect to that. Similar arises with a discretionary trust and possibly a unit trust, depending on who the unit holders are. There's that flexibility on, so because you can move money to a company like a bucket company, there's that flexibility on timing you only get flexibility on timing if you have a company somewhere in your structure yeah correct if you don't have a company in your structure then there's no flexibility of timing meaning any profit derived in that year will hit an individual tax return correct good point that's that's correct so if you've got a company you can hold it at the corporate rate and then you can decide to realize the rest of the tax at a later point that's a tick for companies for having that, that flexibility around when they make income distributions to individuals. Criteria two, the allocation of income distributions. 
In terms of flexibility and the the flexible allocation of income, then what we're talking about here is the ability to have some choice in who actually gets assessed on the income in question. Now, if you're an individual running as a sole trader, you have no flexibility. Likewise, if you're a company and the shares are owned by an individual, also have, other than that timing benefit, you have no flexibility about who is actually going to get assessed at the end of the day. The flexibility all comes with discretionary trusts or any trust that has an element of discretion to it. With a discretionary trust, the key sort of tenant of that type of trust is that it has discretion on who can benefit and who receives the income. So it can say the income goes to Bob or it can say no income goes to Bob because his tax rate's too high. Instead, I want to give the income to Sally or I want to give it to another trust that's got some losses or I want to give it to a bucket company because I can cap tax and do investments there. So massive tick for trust where flexibility in income distributions is seen as a desirable thing. Of course, there is a consideration here of both the personal services income rules and also part 4A, especially in the context of professional practices. So Those are two types of integrity rules to prevent money being assessed to companies and trusts in circumstances where it is really for the personal exertion of an individual. So say, in other words, if you're an employee of a company and you say, Mr. Employer, don't pay my salary to me, pay it to my family trust, but the money's all just for employment income, then those rules will say, actually, that's going to get assessed to you. So and when you're thinking about those kind of criteria, those personal service income rules and the Part 4A anti-avoidance rules need to be considered because you don't want to put in place an arrangement where it's purported that income is going to go to a trust or company, but for tax law purposes, it's just going to get assessed to, assessed to the individual, which would defeat the purpose of putting that arrangement in place at all. And that particularly affects professional practices, doesn't it? Accountants, yeah. lawyers, etc. Yeah. So what the state of play on that is that a few years ago, the commissioner issued some guidelines and the commissioner's guidelines said that here are some rules and if you comply with one or more of these rules, the risk of you being audited and the risk of Part 4A applying to you will be lower It's not going to be zero, but it'll be lower. So there were essentially a number of different rules that could be put in place and they all looked at the amount of income that was ultimately going to the professional practitioner as compared to the amount of income that was going in other directions, so to family members or trusts or companies. Those guidelines have actually been withdrawn uh, and we're still, I believe, waiting for new guidelines to to be put in place about. It's a bit of a state of flux and a bit of a grey area. Criteria three, allocation of cash. So we've gone through some criteria already. Then the next is about, well, what do we want to do with the cash the business has generated? Do we want to reinvest it? Do we want to just use it for personal use to buy Ferraris and Lamborghinis and fancy dinners? Or do we want to do something else with with the money? Where, Where does the money want to go? So if you're a sole trader, again, 
not really much problems. Well, one, you can't re- you can't reinvest it without, well, you can reinvest it, but you've already paid the top rate. But similarly, you, you've got no restrictions on what you do with the money. You've already paid full tax. You have no restrictions on what you can and can't do with the money. In contrast, where you've got a company, because the company's only paid corporate tax, there's various restrictions on what can can't be done with the money. Can be reinvested in the company, can even be used for personal use, but you have to be very particular not to contravene Division 7A. So you can the company can actually lend money to other entities, so other companies, other trusts, or even individuals. But if it's a trust or an individual, a Division 7A loan agreement needs to be put in place. Principal payments need to be made and otherwise it will be actually treated as a deemed dividend. So similarly with a trust, if a trust is set up and there is a bucket company, they may have the same sort of problems. Those will be problems if the trust distributes income to the bucket company and doesn't actually pay the money because the money is actually used for other things. With a trust, trusts can have similar problems about flexible allocation while trusts have complete flexibility in who they distribute to they've got the problem of if they do not distribute the extra cash the cash then the trust will get assessed on that so what's commonly done then is that well someone's got a benefit and we don't want to benefit individuals only and to a certain extent because we don't want to pay top marginal rates so the trust will decide to distribute to other companies, often known as bucket companies. And then if that money is not paid, you've got sort of the same problem, the the same Division 7A problem that this company has owned money that's not been paid. So you get into the same sort of problems, which can be a problem for trading and running a business through a discretionary trust. Exactly. If you have a business that is capital intensive and the money you generate needs to go back into the business, Mm. then you have a huge problem if you're operating through a trust. Yeah, if you're operating directly through a trust, they don't have an ability to... There's not a simple way of accumulating working capital. There are complex ways of doing it, but there's not a simple way like a company of just paying corporate tax and not paying a dividend. It's going to be a bit more complex than that for a discretionary trading trust. Yes. So if if you have a capital-intensive business... Operating through a company would be better because you can keep the working capital in the in the company. Yeah, correct. Not not that I will torture you with going through the details, but just can you hint at it? What is the complex way of fixing the problem that mm. the trust needs working? Yeah, needs working capital. If you did have a discretionary trust that is actually running a business and one that is capital intensive, there's probably a few things to consider. One is whether it's worth restructuring, so moving to a company. The other thing to be considered is distributing to a company to cap tax at 30%, but then the company lending the money back to the trust or the entitlement not being paid and with Division 7A loan agreement in place. That's how you can keep the money in the trust by doing a Division 7A yeah, loan yep, agreement. Yep. The issue then is that that needs to be managed over time and the Division 7A arrangement needs to be repaid over time. So money does have to come out at some point or mm. have to be transferred at some point. So so in a trust, you have constantly have the problem that the money needs to leak yeah. back into the company through Division 7A, principal loan, repayments, etc. Mm. Yeah. So you're kind of are constantly at this issue that you can't keep the working capital in the trust. Yeah, this has especially become an issue post-2009 where the ATO released its 
draft tax determination that unpaid present entitlements to companies would generally be treated as financial accommodation and then therefore contravening Division 7A. It's been proposed that there would be some workarounds a few years ago for discretionary trading trusts, but we haven't, those proposals haven't seen the light of day at this stage. So we've been sort of 10 years on this new regime. So do you see more of a movement now to not have uh, businesses running out of trust, but more having the business sitting in a company and then the shares being held by discretionary trust? Yeah, I've definitely seen that and I've definitely seen a few clients move from discretionary trust structures to putting in place a company to operate the business and then the company's shares being owned by discretionary trusts. Because then you don't have this constant problem of yeah. that the cash really should follow the distribution. Absolutely, yeah. The company could then just retain its working capital. Criteria four, preserving income types and streaming. So next factor, we've got preserving income types. So this is really relevant to trusts. Trusts have a unique ability to be able to flow through their income to the beneficiaries. And that, that extends to the type of income as well. So what that means is that a trust can actually stream different classes of income to different beneficiaries. And the main classes are dividends, capital gains, and then everything else. Correct. Yeah. So frank dividends and capital gains can actually be streamed independent of ordinary or income or everything else. And that could be really useful if you've got a trust where it's actually got a capital gain. You want that capital gain to go to individuals, as we'll come to in a second, but you want other income to go to, let's say, a company because you want that income to be capped at 30%. In contrast, a company doesn't, there's no way to, when a company has to give money to its shareholders, it has to pay a dividend and that's just treated as a dividend. It doesn't matter how the company made the money. It's either a dividend, it could be a return of capital, but in most cases it's going to be a dividend. Yeah. And a company is not entitled to the CGT discount. So if the trust makes a capital gain and distributes this capital gain to the company, you lose the discount. Yeah, correct. So, so therefore never distribute a capital gain to a company yeah, from a discretionary trust or to, yeah. distribute it to another trust or to an individual. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And that's the next point I've got down here, which is a structuring point to consider is accessing the 50% CGT discount. Criteria five, using the 50% CGT discount. Individuals, partners and trusts can access the discount in the right circumstances, but companies cannot access the 50% CGT discount. So it means that if a company disposes of a CGT asset, it could be goodwill, land, those any gains made on those would be not subject to the discount and full um, rate of tax would apply, the corporate rate, and then if it's dividended out, then the, the top marginal rate potentially. In contrast, those other entities I mentioned, the individuals, partners and trusts, they can get the benefit of the 50% discount. So you would always have business real property sitting in a trust? Mm, yeah, 
and have the actual company then operating through a company. I mean, having the actual business operating through a company. Yeah, so, so for that reason, it's generally advisable not to have appreciating assets, particularly investment assets, that are likely to generate capital gains in companies. So usually it would be advised that those should be held by either discretionary trusts or unit trusts. And the difference between the two would generally be depending on whether there are co-owners or not. So if there's no co-owners, it might just be through a discretionary trust. But if there are co-owners or the potential for co-owners, you would see it as a unit trust. It's a unit trust owning the property and probably discretionary trusts owning the units in the unit trust. Mm. But if you ever sell the units in the unit trust, mm. then it would attract stamp duty? Yes, potentially, yeah. So that's um, another consideration is state taxes. Criteria six, state tax considerations. So in this structuring conversation, state taxes are something that may or may not be relevant, particularly if the entity is acquiring land. Most states have got rid of duty for anything other than land or interests in land. But for, for interest in land, generally landholder duty rules may apply. Each state has their own version of the landholder duty rules. And depending on the jurisdiction and the structure involved, there may be pros and cons of using one structure over another, particularly if it's envisaged or possible that equity may be changing hands over time. So to give you an example of that, the rules can be different for landholder duty between unit trusts and companies. In New South Wales, I believe there, there's no distinction between the two, but in Victoria, for instance, the acquisition thresholds are very different between a company and a unit trust, and you can actually trigger the landholder duty rules in Victoria with only 20%, only acquiring a 20% interest rather than 50% if it's a company. So it's another consideration to throw in the mix if you're going down the path of a unit trust versus a company. Criteria seven, accessing the small business CGT concessions. Next one is the small business CGT concessions. Now, if you're a sole trader, small business CGT concessions can be relatively straightforward to apply, but the complexity of applying those concessions increases astronomically as the structure involved for the business gets more complex. So at the very top end of the complexity is where you've sold shares in a company or units in a unit trust. The level of rules that you need to work through is, is the most voluminous. There's new rules that have been put in place last year about to apply additional criteria and that can be the most complex. Similarly, if a company or a trust is disposing of an asset itself rather than an equity share is just selling an asset, the concessions can be more complex because you'll need to work through who owns the equity and where there's trusts involved. You may need to flow through distributions and the complexity rises. Also, there's complexity where you've got a company involved in actually getting the money out of a company without tax because it's all good for the concessions to apply to the company when the company sells an asset, but for the shareholders to actually get that money, there's got to be a way of getting it out without 
having a dividend and there are some mechanisms for that but you've got to fall in the right criteria and apply the rules correctly to be able to get money out of a company without tax which is usually quite rare. Criteria 8, eligibility for government tax concessions. Another consideration is eligibility for government grants and tax concessions. I've got particularly the R&D tax incentive and also the early stage innovation company tax concession. Because those two only applies to companies. Both of those only apply to companies. So if you're doing research and development and wanting to get some credits from the government, the only way to get those is to have a company. Similarly, if you're looking to attract some investors to your business operation, wanting to attract them by having the early stage innovation company tax concessions available, the only way to do that is again by issuing shares in a company. So partner in a partnership wouldn't work and an interest in a trust wouldn't work for the purposes of those rules. So, And for the purposes of these rules, is it allowed to have the shares held in a discretionary trust? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the makeup of the, the company involved, the who owns the shares, is not particularly relevant. It's somewhat relevant with the early stage innovation company rules that you can only issue a certain amount of equity to the new investor, but whoever owns the rest of the equity, whether it's an individual or trust, is not relevant to those to those rules. Criteria nine, asset protection. Moving slightly away from tax to some other considerations, we've got asset protection, which is a huge one of going into business. As much as possible, you'd like to try to protect what you've built, whether that's assets outside of the business or if you've got multiple businesses or businesses with separate branches that are doing separate activities, you want to try to, as much as possible, ring fence different things so that, you know, what you've worked hard to build up it is not at risk if what you're doing currently goes sour for whatever reason. As an example, if you're a sole trader, you're running a business in your own name. If something goes wrong, you can be sued in your own name and any assets you hold in your own name You can be on the hook for those. Yeah, including the main residence. Including your main residence if you own it in your individual name. Somewhat similarly with a partnership, partners are jointly and severally liable for the debts of a partnership. What, by the way, what means so, severely? I, I've me never been able to work out what severely means. So severally means that you can choose Everybody to go after one. Mind. Yeah, I yeah. See. They're all up for it but also any one of them for the entire debt. For the, is up for the entire debt. So you can't say, oh, I only had 25% of the partner, there are three others. I only got to pay 25%. Would, yeah. No. Yeah, they, a creditor can go after any partner for the full amount. So that's a downside to partnerships. Now, partnerships can be structured without individuals as the partners, so a common way of dealing with that problem is having either companies or discretionary trusts as the partners in the partnership. A company gives you gives you more asset protection because obviously the company is a separate legal entity and it can be sued in its own name, but generally if a claim is made against a company, that's limited to the assets of the company. If you're a director of a company, there are ways that the directors can be personally liable. Those include insolvent trading. It can include superannuation super, guarantee. unpaid superannuation 
unpaid PAYG and what's proposed is unpaid GST, which is likely to take effect shortly. So there are things that directors of companies can be exposed for. And those claims, someone claiming would be able to go after the assets of that particular director. So from a structuring perspective, it's then important to consider who the directors actually are and what assets they hold. Hence, you would make the husband the director of the trading company and then you would have the wife completely separate as the director of the um, bucket company. Correct, yeah. So that the money you transferred out of the uh, trading company is safe in the bucket company. Yep, yep. There's also the question of the ownership of shares if you've got a company. So if an individual owns shares, then that's an asset that they hold just like anything else. And if they're running multiple businesses and they're a director of those, then a claim could be made in their capacity as a director against their shares that they hold in another company. So you've sort of got a bit of a contamination. That can be dealt with by addressing who the owners of the shares are. And for instance, if you have a discretionary trust as the owner of the shares, it's not pers- not personally owned anymore, which which provides much more protection. With a discretionary trust, it's a, it's a unique vehicle and it's one where someone controls the trust and there's a trustee and an appointer, but no one owns beneficial title to the assets. The beneficial title is held on behalf of all beneficiaries. So even though, let's say, Bob controls the discretionary trust, he holds those assets on trust for a wide class of beneficiaries and therefore they're not his assets. They're, they're quite distinct from his assets. And so you would make Bob the director of the copper trustee of the uh, discretionary trust, not the wife, to keep the wife completely out of the trading setup for creditor protection? Yes, potentially. So, well, I mean, for, for the trustee company, I'd say it matters less but you can consider whether it should be Bob or Sally in those circumstances as the, the director of the trustee company because that company is not trading, so it's has less risk, well, oh, really? less so risk then- exposed to it. So it could be Sally as the director of the trustee company. Okay. Yeah, if Bob's happy with that. <laughs> Criteria 10, complexity and keeping it simple. Criteria 11, costs. So we then got complexity and costs. Now, as a general rule, the more complex something is, the more costs are going to be involved. And that whether that's accounting fees or compliance fees or things you've got to jump through, the likelihood of your structure getting audited, more complexity usually means more costs. So particularly the more trust you have involved, the level of complexity goes up. Where you've got trusts, you need to do distribution minutes each year to determine where the income of the trust goes. You've got a long trust deed and make sure you've got to comply with that. Uh, where you've got a company, you've got to maintain a franking account and frank distributions and provide statements for that. So by far the simplest for both the complexity and cost is a sole trader. But as we've gone through, there's a lot of downsides to that as well. So from a cost and complexity point, the more complex structure is, the more costs are going to be involved. Criteria 12, issuing equity. One other point is the ability to issue equity. And 
the counter to that flexibility. So where you've got a situation where you want to actually bring in another equity owner, you cannot do that with a discretionary trust as the owner of whatever the asset is in question. So if a discretionary trust owns land or runs a business directly, very difficult to do. Well, it's not possible to actually issue equity in a discretionary trust because as we've gone through, discretionary no one owns a discretionary trust and therefore you can't have ownership interests. In contrast, if you've got a company or a unit trust, you've got that ability to issue equity. Now, if you're issuing equity in a company, you do have to consider the various provisions of the Corporations Act and how they would apply to the arrangement. For example, if you're issuing shares to a minority shareholder, they may have rights under the Corporations Act, like the ability to bring a minority oppression claim if there's oppressive conduct. In contrast, if units are issued in a unit trust, the Corporations Act doesn't generally govern that arrangement and what governs that arrangement is solely the terms of the trustee. So where you've got the decision to issue equity, you can only do that through a company or trust. You can do it through a partnership as well, but generally through a company or trust. And then you've got the decision of, well, what statutory or what laws are going to apply to the arrangement. So there could be a big difference between the Corporations Act and just the provisions of the trust deed. So it's a relevant consideration if there's going to be equity issued or the potential for that to happen, what would that look like? How would that be done? And those important things to think about in addition to having a co-ownership agreement put in place. Criteria 13, flexibility and estate planning. The last point is flexibility. So this is sort of the counter to the, the ability to issue equity. The, the beauty of a discretionary trust is that there's complete or well, almost complete flexibility, flexibility of income distributions, flexibility of capital distributions, and also flexibility of ownership as well. So passing of control of a discretionary trust could be a lot more simple from a tax perspective than passing control of a company. So if I, let's say I, you know, I own all the shares in a company and I want to pass those shares to my children, I would actually have to transfer those shares. And that may be, it may result in duty, that may result in CGT. In contrast, if it's a discretionary trust, it's all about the control mechanism and I could pass control without triggering either duty or CGT. So discretionary trusts are really the, the vehicle of ultimate flexibility in terms of not being locked in, whereas on the other side, a company is a little bit more rigid. One very quick question. Yeah, yeah. If we look at the most common structures, yep. the most popular one is probably sole trader. Mm. I can imagine partnerships are slowly fading out. I think there are less and less partnerships in the marketplace. Yep. So then the next popular structure is just a plain company, very straightforward, just a company. Yep. Then after that, a trading trust with a corporate trustee. Mm. The problem there, of course, we, we discussed the problem, but I think yep. that's also quite popular, just a plain trading trust with a corporate trustee. Yep. And the next one we already alluded to quite a few times, and that is having a trading company where the shares are held by discretionary trust with a corporate trustee, having a bucket company on the side that is then mm. owned by another individual, 
and then possibly a business real property held by another discretionary trust. Yeah, or unit trust, yeah. yeah. And often, actually, that business real property is held within an SMSF and then lent back. Mm, yeah, SMSF, the- discretionary trust or unit trust, yeah. Yeah, some other entity. Yeah, yeah. Then you've got other ones where you can have like plant and equipment or IP owned separately to the business or if you've got different activities that the company's doing, you want to like have subsidiary one, two and three. Yeah, so ring fence your different yeah, yeah. businesses in case one business goes bust, yeah. the other businesses are not dragged down as well. Yeah, exactly. And then sometimes you come across like hybrid trusts, things like that, but they're fairly rare. Yeah, because they're complicated and expensive. Yeah, yeah. Or you have a fixed unit trust where you've got a unit trust, but the investors are self-managed super funds as well. Like if you've got business real property and you've got multiple partners, you probably have have to have a fixed unit trust. Yeah, so for example, let's say you have an accounting practice with three partners. You would put the business real property into a unit trust and then each of their SMSFs would buy a third of the units in the unit trust. Yeah. Yep, and the unit trust can borrow as well without having to worry about LIBA rules as well because it's not controlled by any of them. So that's a bit of a summary of uh, some of the factors and some of the issues to consider when thinking about what structure is best and what's the most tax-effective structure and what's the best from a commercial perspective as well. As I said at the start, there's not a one-size-fits-all solution and these generally need to be tailored to the business involved, what it's exactly doing, what activities it's going to do, is it going to reinvest money, who are the owners, what activities is it doing, etc. So you've got a bit of a blank canvas and you can choose where to go from there. Welcome back. So there are a lot of factors to take into account and the end result is probably never perfect, but just the best solution under the current circumstances. In the next episode, episode 190, Simon Dorovich of ANA Tax Legal Consulting in Melbourne will talk about taxable importations. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you on the next episode. (laughs) 